Hello and welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose. I am someone who did not go to art school, but I love learning about art and discovering new artists. And I'm Betty. I'm also someone who did not go to art school, but I have been working as a gallery guide at an art gallery for the past eight years. And I also like learning about new artists, sometimes in the gallery and sometimes outside of it. So this is a follow-up to a previous episode that we did, um, kind of generally talking about the history of Indigenous peoples in both the United States and in Canada, and a little bit about how that history intersects with the art world and contemporary treatment in museums. But today we're going to be having a much more cheerful, I think, uh, look at some Indigenous artists Um as well as how different artists um, have taken their Indigenous identities and how that informs their work in different ways um, and different interpretations of that history that we talked about in the last episode come to life um, in museums and galleries. Yeah, so I have a few artists here that I want to talk about, which relates to a lot of our discussions that we had um, in the last podcast, just about kind of contemporary history of um, indigenous people and their relations to like the rest of Canada and the U.S. and the government and how a lot of artists grew up under these circumstances where um, it was definitely very difficult in terms of their upgrade in terms of their upbringing as well as their life currently and some of these artists I'll be talking about passed away recently and some of them are still alive. So so the first artist I want to talk about, his name is Carl Beam. Um, he was born in Manitoulin Island in Ontario in 1943. Um, and he, he passed away in 2005. But one of the reasons I wanted to bring him up first, and uh, I think he's a very significant artist, is because he was actually the first Indigenous Canadian artist to have his work purchased by the National Gallery of Canada, our largest art gallery, but not as a indigenous artist in the indigenous collection, but as a contemporary artist. So in 1985, the National Gallery purchased North American Iceberg, and it was placed in their contemporary art collection. So, you know, along with, you know, I don't know, like Andy Warhol and people like that. So um, it's pretty significant because Carl Beam, throughout his um, career had always like he wanted people to just call him an artist not an indigenous artist so um, you know he doesn't just want to be limited by his culture but of course a lot of his artworks are informed by his culture so we can't really get away from talking about it it's interesting because prior to being a lot of other or not a lot some other indigenous artists also had their work in the um national gallery um or sorry not the national gallery some later on some other indigenous artists had their works purchased by the national gallery but prior to that a lot of uh, artists um, of indigenous ancestry kind of actually tried to hide the fact that they were uh, indigenous. They, it was, you know, some, they didn't want to be um, like pigeonholed in a way. Um, but uh, Carl Beam, you know, obviously because of the nature of his work and the subject matter, he can't really hide that. <laughs> so um, in any case, so he, he actually, I found this interesting. I read somewhere that he calls himself a post-Indian I'm not really sure exactly what that means, but, you know, you can interpret that in 
whatever way you think makes sense. Um, and he's particularly um, known for, so he, he's a multi or was a multimedia artist. He mixed like, you know, oil, acrylic, um, paint, and um, on he painted on like paper, plexiglass, stone, cement, wood. Um, he also made pottery, ceramic pottery, and looked for found objects and stuck them together and also did like etchings and screen silk screen processes as well one of the methods he was most well known for is using a photo transfer technique which is to like transfer a photograph onto a large wooden board usually and then he would paint over it or he would like collage over it and things like that so um, he kind of like a lot of people think he had a really remarkable ability to like collapse past, present and future with the uh, like in one space on a canvas or on a wooden board. And so this um, first one I sent to you is called Time Dissolve or Time Dissolves. So I guess before I tell you what it's about, um, what is your first impression? So it basically looks to me like it's an old photograph or like many old photographs that have been collaged together, but it looks like it's melting. Um, Like, I think to me, it looks like paint was thrown over it, but it's coming down in these streaks that especially from a distance makes it look like the whole thing is melting. And then there are these red circles that seem to be around certain people's faces. And it's really unclear to me why they have been circled but there is this splatter that looks almost like blood over one corner of it as well that makes me think that maybe these people are dead or were killed in a certain way um it's very ominous yeah for sure and uh, you're definitely right about or you're most likely right about this like melting nature and again like the title has the word dissolve in it and you know he's saying like time is dissolving um so um the photos that are uh, in the uh, so the big photo that's uh, at the lower bottom that looks like it's a whole bunch of people in a group um that is actually a school reunion that uh carl beam had with his uh some of with I think most of the people he went to school with. Um, so Carl Beam was sent to residential school actually from the age 10 to 18. So he was there for eight years, quite a significant long time uh, for um you know anybody who had to endure residential school, um, which I if you haven't if you don't know what it, it's about, listen to our previous podcast. I kind of went quite in detail about uh, what that was. Yeah, so that's a picture of uh, his residential school. I believe the circle uh, it, to the right is him. And there's a, to the left, there's a guy and there's like some writing on but beneath the guy's head. I think it says my friend Gilbert. So that was his best friend in school. Um, and then the picture is just above on the left, uh, a woman wearing like a black jacket. That's Carl Beam's mother. Um, and I think the circle again is him as a, as a kid. And then there's like a smaller picture of a bunch of kids. And I think that's like a younger uh, class photo of of him in school um the the bottom picture at the like the very bottom um like i i haven't been able to find out exactly what those are and, and they're really blurry but it's like it looks like a film like a film strip that's continuous or it's almost like uh insinuating 
something like like time passing through like a film strip or something like that um and then because and I think the photos in there are not necessarily like photos of him and his family like the ones in the middle same with the picture at the very top um that's actually a uh, a copy of a painting uh which is it's, and it's called the lamentation of christ so it's mary holding christ i think after he was taken down from the crucifix and so anyway i'm not going to go too much into every single metaphor in this painting because then this whole podcast will be about this painting but um essentially like he's referencing a bunch of things he's referencing uh things like obviously residential school the white paint like uh, he doesn't he never like truly explains exactly what that means but a lot of people think it references like whitewashing and um then like the red splatters like you could really you could interpret that as blood because obviously lots of people are beaten and abused and um you know a lot of violence was committed against these kids so that's um probably a pretty easy parallel to draw um but the thing with mary and jesus at the top and the inclusion of his mother uh carl beam was really most likely trying to insinuate this relationship um this bond between mother and child or parent and child in general which the residential school is meant to destroy it's meant to break this bond of mother and child and um and 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 the thing is that's not just like what happened it it actually was official policy like in historic documentation at the creation of the residential schools there's official like language in there saying things along the lines of like the best way to break um like a nation's power is to break the relationship between mothers and their children so this uh, this is a great way for us to basically eradicate this culture um without actually killing people directly <laughs> um there's also like euphemisms or um or um or symbols that he's included in in here again like so the the addition of like the slight color it seems like there's also slight bits of blue in there although it's hard to tell um but basically you know residential school in addition to being a really like depressing place um you also had to dress mostly all in black and again like i mentioned last episode you can't speak your own language um you can't express any emotion or joy you can't like talk to your family obviously um but a way, a, something that Carl Beam always talked about is that um, he always said, like, kids will be kids. They'll also, they'll, they'll always find ways to find freedom, even in the most repressive situations that, you know, they'll get into trouble. They'll, you know, just do things to resist. And um, it, it, art class for him was one of the things that he really, you know, enjoyed because you got to paint. There's color. You got to express yourself, you know, probably the only time you get to do that. And for a lot of them, making an art, creating art um, was a way that they got through it. They they came out of it alive and some people didn't. So, um, yeah, like a, and a, a, lot, a lot of other people in addition to Carl Beam used painting and colors as a survival mechanism. So, yeah, like um, it, this kind of background is still kind of depressing, but it, what Carl Beam and probably a lot of other artists similar to him want us to get out of this work is not necessarily just like, oh, poor us, you know, we, we, we endured this terrible time as children but also that we were resilient like we pushed back we we survived and we came out the other end and we 
um, persevered. So, you know, I, I like I personally quite like this work for that reason. It's also worth noting what an achievement it is to be recognized as a contemporary artist in a major art institution because one of the major things that we talked about last episode was the tendency of art museums to treat indigenous art as things that are a craft and are often closer to the natural world rather than this modern artistic world which is of course an absolutely crap distinction um and so every little piece of greater recognition of of both the artistry of sort of um traditional art forms that are often regarded as craft rather than art which is pretty ridiculous or even just the recognition of contemporary artists who are working in art forms that uh the average person would say like, oh, yes, that's a fine art product, but they're coming from a historical background and perspective that has been so marginalized everywhere, but also in the art world. And that actually brings me to one of the artists that I wanted to talk about, um, who is the artist Diani Whitehawk. She's got a very interesting background um, because so her mother was adopted out of the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota to non-native parents in Wisconsin. As Whitehawk was growing up, like she had very little connection to sort of uh, her native heritage because that was removed from her life. Her family is from the Chicago Lakota tribe, um, and once she was, when she got a little older and got into her teen years, then she began learning more and more about her Lakota ancestry and really becoming more connected with her heritage, um, which of course really informed her art experiences. Um, as she started to emerge in the art world. So she's worked in tons of different mediums. Um, She's well known for her paintings uh, that are really influenced by traditional like quill work, beadwork, textiles, um, big traditional parts of the Lakota tribe. Um, And she talks frequently about this dismissal of craft as not art and wanting to both recognize craft more directly as an artistic form um, in these various different things like the the beadwork and the textiles but also things like basket weaving canoe making um, lots of stuff that is dismissed as not art because it does have a practical purpose even though there's a ton of artistry that goes into that construction as well and her work also frequently comments on actually a similar concept to like negative cultural appropriation which is the minimizing of native artists versus like giving lots of recognition to western slash white artists who are taking influence from native artists um so it is a very similar question that conversations about cultural appropriation are asking which is like why do you like this thing when it comes from a white person but not when it comes from an indigenous person even though it is from the indigenous person's like life (laughs) Um, and asking like who is allowed to be the artist in that question. And a specific work that kind of illustrates some of these issues um, is called, there's a little series, Carry One and Carry Two. And looking specifically at Carry Two, it's basically this basket. It's like a copper basket and ladle that is absolutely covered in this gorgeous beadwork. And so the basket is attached to a wall that it, it, It's uh, hard to tell because there's not a person standing here for reference, but it looks to be quite far up on the wall, um, maybe like about eye level with the person. Um, But coming down from that basket is 
this giant trail of um, synthetic sinew um, that are all just coming down in strips. And so obviously this is a completely impractical basket. Like you wouldn't actually use this to carry anything. But it is technically a basket. It technically could have a functional use. But she's rendered it very impractical and then put it up on a wall and called it art um, at the same time that she's using these more traditional methods of beadwork. And so it's grappling with those questions that I was just talking about, about like what is allowed to be called art? Why do we call something art versus craft? And why do we place these moral judgments onto what one or the other is? And so I just thought that was a really cool piece to point out. Kind of, this kind of reminds me of um, traditional um, bandolier bags, which are also made of, I think, either glass beads or porcupine quills um, that we have here, like in uh, around where I live, like in some of the Anishinaabe nations would um, make these kinds of bags. And again, those are meant to be like ceremonial. They're, they're worn in like some sort of like leaders ceremony or something like that. And it's not meant to hold anything. And in fact, um, I was just looking at carry one and it looks very similar to a bandolier bag. Like carry one is kind of like carry two, where it's got that synthetic sinew that's like all the way to the ground. But the, the, carry like the bag itself it looks like just a flat rectangle like it doesn't actually hold anything uh which is like a bandolier bag a bandolier bag often you can't actually put anything in it you just hold it over your shoulder and it looks really nice um so uh but but yeah so it's like i think like often people think craft is um, or people try to make the distinctions by saying it's not art and saying, oh, well, like craft is like knitting a sweater. It has a function, um, whereas art is often not functional directly. It's meant to be looked at. But in many of these cases, like with um, Diani Whitehawk's um, carries and with the bandolier bags, they are just meant to be looked at. So you can't it's hard to make that argument saying, you know, this is craft and not art because um, it actually has a function because because it doesn't and again even if it does have function um it's all it could also be art um so i i do like how she kind of um like further blurs that boundary between arts and crafts Mm -hmm. so yeah actually i kind of um uh, i wanted to talk about um another artist that kind of has to do with um what carl beam uh the previous artist uh it talked about in his work which is this relationship to the to the mother and so one of the other artists that who is a alive contemporary artist um uh, she's an artist as well as a uh, filmmaker. Uh, so her name is Shelley Nero. Uh, she was actually born in Niagara Falls, New York, um, and she's uh, of the Mohawk Nation. Um, but she grew up in Ontario, which you know across the river. Uh, so she is. So she she makes films, and she also is a photographer. And she generally uses herself or female members of her family and her 
like themes that she generally likes to do is like challenge stereotypes and cliches of Native American women. So this work I sent you just now is called The Shirt. And so basically it's Shelly Nero herself. Um, She has an American flag bandana on top of her head, probably insinuating her like American heritage or um, maybe also insinuating what America has done to the land. Um, And then she is wearing a white shirt. And the first picture says, my ancestors were annihilated, exterminated, murdered, and massacred. And the second picture says, and all I get is this shirt. So yeah, so obviously she's making um, allusions to the land. And of course, like in, uh, as I mentioned before, a lot of indigenous uh, cultures are, um, the mother is very imp- a very important symbol. Actually, a lot of uh, cultures are matrilineal. So o- Ojibwe, so um, Carl Beam was Ojibwe, for, in- for example, and he took his wife's name, Beam, um, and their uh, families, the the children take the mother's name and the name is passed down through the mother's side. And generally, like, um, like families are passed down th- through the mother's side. And so, you know, not only is this destruction of the woman terrible in the first place, because she's a human being, but also you're literally, you know, destroying entire family lines. And, and of course, like, she's posing in a way like she's going like a tourist, like going to a place and getting a t shirt. And all I get is his shirt, like a tourist shirt. Um, But of course, like, you know, it's, it's talking about a very serious issue. Um, Oh, and 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 again like uh, some people look at this and we do have these pictures up at the art gallery um again they think oh you know what she has on her shirt like my ancestors were annihilated exterminated murdered and past, uh, massacred that's past tense that happened in the past like 400 years ago and it's like no um a lot of these problems are happening right now um and especially one thing that um Shelley Nero as well as a lot of other indigenous people want people to understand is um uh, so th- we have this um acronym in Canada called um, it's MMIWG which stands for Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. So um, again an official report was commissioned in the last few years to just going through like thousands and thousands of women who are indigenous who have either who are either missing or murdered and um they're like code cases we have no idea where they are or if they were found we don't know like what happened to them and some of the cases you know uh, is difficult to know you know obviously what happened not every case gets solved but the vast majority of these cases is because the police don't care like they they don't take it seriously or they don't really investigate they kind of just shelve it and or some cases don't even invest don't even take it as a case um and then the other thing that this um this uh, series alludes to which is a less sad issue um which is um some indigenous artists and people are actually trying to change a one word in the lyrics of our national anthem so as everyone knows our uh, national anthem starts with oh canada and the next line is our home and native land so uh they would like it to be changed to our home on native land which is technically more accurate um obviously this hasn't been officially changed i'm not even sure if there is an official lyric um but anyway so yeah these are just some of the some of the things she's bringing up and they're again they're contemporary issues
That's cool. I didn't know the thing about trying to change the Canadian national anthem, but that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's definitely like it goes back to what we were talking about last episode. It's like you're saying, I'm a native New Yorker. It's like maybe you were born there and grew up there, but are you a native New Yorker? Because Shelley Nero is actually a native New Yorker. I want to talk a little bit about Gerald Clark. Uh, he is an artist. He was born in 1967. He is, uh, again, someone who is uh, contemporary in snowmaking art today. He was born in the Kawea Band of Mission Indians, um, which is the full title of their tribe. And he also had an interesting relationship sort of with his indigenous heritage growing up because his parents divorced at age three and he moved to Orange County with his mother and siblings. But on the weekends, he would live on the reservation with his father. Um, So we had this back and forth relationship with his own indigenous culture and heritage. He also started out his career in the trade, specifically welding, electrical maintenance, and hydraulics, which ended up informing a lot of his artwork later on. Uh, he then went and got a Bachelor of Arts and sort of started his work as an artist of many, many, many different mediums. And so he works um, like as a painter, but also as a sculptor he does some basket creation uh he does these series with brands which i'll be talking about a little more he's made like fake road signs lots of different types of mixed media um and of course this is all informed by his background of having a lot of experience working with his hands and doing welding and stuff like that and he is now extremely involved with the kuya tribe and is in fact i part of the Kuwia tribal government and the last record I said that he is still actively part of that government and so he's sort of like very involved in the day-to-day of the Kuwia people and he as an artist is dedicated to basically giving back Native American people like as he put it the humanity that has been taken from it by stereotypes created over the past five centuries searching for the unconventional beauty one only finds in the truth And then he said, I'm a California Indian, part traditionalist, part Disneyland. I want to express the passion, pain, and reverence I feel as a contemporary Native person. (laughs) All which is to say, you know, like, he's a person. (laughs) He's a complicated human being with, like, lots of different stuff going on, (laughs) as we all are. Um, But taking that essential humanity and also sharing it through a specifically Native perspective. Um, And his work is very politically focused and strives to reflect political opinions like within um, his specific area in the country, but also the United States as a whole and in their whole history. And so just to use one specific example of his work, one of the things that he is most well known for is the Branded series. So he created a branding iron um, like you would use on a cattle ranch, which is family had a cattle ranch and so that's another connection to his family but it actually spells out native um the first one i believe spelled that he made uh spelled out indian and then he has one active on his website now for native um that he used to stamp onto different things this is actually a satire of collectors who are trying to brand what is and isn't native um so taking like objects and being like 
oh, this sort of traditional thing, this like thing that looks like the stereotype of what in my have in my head of an indigenous piece of art, like this is native, but this thing that's a painting that's made by a contemporary indigenous artist, like this isn't native because that's not what I think it should look like. Um, and so that's where the idea for this came from. And then he uses it to brand onto things like just a just a piece of paper what does it mean when you just take a piece of paper and stamp it and brand it literally as native what does that mean um and who gets to decide what is and isn't a valid form of native art and so you can see like i clearly was going for a kind of theme here with the artists that i end up selecting and looking at the questions that they are demanding be asked about legitimacy and how we grant legitimacy mm-hmm and uh, speaking of another artist who um, also kind of defies expectations, um, the last artist I will be talking about um, is a British Columbia artist called Brian Youngin. Um, so he's actually of um, Danza, which is his native side, and of and Swiss ancestry. So he lives in North Okanagan in British Columbia, and. Yeah, he's also a mixed media artist, uh, but he he mostly makes like installations and sculptural works. He he's not like he doesn't have a lot of paintings, although he also also does like collages and things like that. Um, so uh, yeah, so his works are um, often they they have like a political. Um, topics are politically driven but he also has you know he says i have a lot of other interests similarly to um clark like you know complex human being not just a native guy in bc but um like he also really loves sports he loves basketball and football a lot of his work is sports related um but he also um like sports and that whole concept of like the gym and the uh like local ymca like it, it is a very also a very integral part of a lot of first nations communities so um it, you know it also does have to do with his first nations identity in any case so the work i want to talk about um it, that he did um it's a work called it's technically called 1960 1970 1980 um so in reference to these years but since then he's also made 1990 2000 and 2000 <laughs> so um and sorry and 2010 <laughs> so uh, they're they're every year is a giant totem pole made out of golf bags so um some of them are like red golf bags it's stacked up high and some of them are like blue and yellow like they're all different colors because golf bags come in different colors and he sort of modifies them he does this to a lot of like sports memorabilia he modifies them a little bit so it's interesting because some of the folds in the golf beds bags actually look like uh, masks or like faces so from far away they look like totem poles from british columbia um so you know and, and some of them uh, the especially the red and black and white one it's actually of traditional colors of some of the haida uh, totem poles out there so it is you know you could mistake it for a totem pole but they're made of golf bags they're fabric <laughs> so um anyway so the particular um the years so every single year reference references something that happened in canada that has to do with first nations people some of them are like you know negative things things that happened that were 
bad, essentially. Uh, but some of them are more positive things. So I thought we'd end on a more positive note um, in some some of them. So just a quick run through. So 1960, that totem pole refers to the first time that First Nations people um, acquire the right to vote in ca- Canadian federal elections. But 1960 also refers to the 60s scoop, as I mentioned before, where Canadian government essentially kidnapped tens of thousands of um, Native children and forced them to be adopted by white families. And then 1970 um, references, mostly references the white papers that were issued by the Trudeau government. Now this is uh, Pierre Trudeau, who's Justin's dad. And he actually... um, uh, a lot of First Nations people, a lot of Indigenous people do not like him um, and in turn probably don't like his son either because uh, th- the white papers actually eradicated a lot of the special privileges that the Indian Act had given, um, status Indians at least, but a lot of it was stripped because Trudeau was trying to argue that, well, Indigenous people should be treated equally as Canadians, so you should just have equal rights, which is good, like having the right to vote. But some of these privileges were taken away, and a lot of it, again, were like treaty, were written in the treaty that they had whatever these privileges are, whether it's fishing grounds or land or whatever. Um, but a lot of it, he was just like, nope, never mind. Um, so uh, Justin is not liked by some people for that reason, even though it was his dad. Um, but he hasn't really done that much uh, to kind of reverse these decisions either. So um And then 1980 was um, when, so the First Nations were fighting for representation within the Constitution of Canada. As I said, we technically only became independent from Britain in 1981. So this was more or less of a success because they were officially included um, in the Canadian uh, Charter of uh, Independence and in our Constitution. Um, but 1990, which is actually when this piece was made, um, and so the totem pole 1990 is represents um, th- this thing that happened in Canada called the Oka crisis. So it was a court decision that was granted to a developer to expand a golf course into disputed Mohawk territory outside of the town of Oka, Quebec. So um, it, it was this it was it was in like at the time I, I think both of us weren't alive yet, but it, it was on the news, like everywhere, at least in Canada, it was a crisis that lasted 78 days. It resulted in one fatality and over 100 wounded. Most of it was Mohawk um, protesters, but I think 35 was Canadian armed soldiers. So yeah, the Canadian government had to send the army into there to quell the disputes and the protests, which is Mohawk um, nation uh, protesting the building of this uh, golf course, hence the golf bags. Um, But the golf course represents more than just, um, you know, white people coming in here and um, building um, a golf course over traditional uh, native grounds. Um, It's also, um, you know, it symbolizes this, like, you know, wealth and upper class privileges, um, which uh, in a lot of cases, um, is kind of exclusive to white communities. Um, but also, uh, golf courses are very environmentally damaging. They destroy the biodiversity of the land and uses massive amounts of water. So um, even golf courses built elsewhere, um, you know, are problematic. So 2000, 
I forget what that totem bag was for. So we'll skip over that one. Okay. Uh, so, and then, um, so 2010 was the, uh, was the year of the Vancouver Olympics. So, um, the Olympics actually has received widespread criticisms for, um, like appropriation of indigenous imagery in their commercial imageries and like, mascots and stuff like that um but you know on a positive note um between 2008 and 2015 so in that 2010s period um president not president prime minister harper also issued um the truth and reconciliation report uh which again is you know it really only just acknowledges uh the wrongs that were done by the canadian government but it is seen as a bit of a win because at least it was acknowledged rather than just erased Oh, dear. <laughs> so this is my positive note. It's acknowledged. Well, as I'm sure you can tell by everything we've talked about this episode, there are so many amazing Indigenous artists out there. And in fact, just trying to have an episode where we just talk about the broad category of Indigenous artists is going to be impossible because their work is so varied. And so obviously, you're just taking a couple selections to speak about some very specific aspects of a few pieces of artwork that relate to some of the themes we were talking about in the last episode. But we will obviously be returning to many more of these artists and lots that we didn't have time to talk about today in future episodes. But thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pictorial. You can find our show notes at relay.fm slash pictorial. And you can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram at aspiringrobotfm. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ArticulationsV. I'm also on YouTube as Articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we also upload these episodes to YouTube where we edit in pictures of what we speak about throughout the podcast. There is a bit of a delay recently because of me, but hopefully they will catch up within a few weeks. <laughs> Thanks for listening, our enthusiasts.